Welcome to Pints and Politics. We are this weekly panel discussion program. We explore all things political with a focus on life in Peterborough and Ontario and sometimes federally. Since March of last year, we've been gathering uh, together online for these discussions. So the discussion to which you're about to listen was recorded last Friday, March 5th, 2021. Joining me for this online discussion are members of our loyal members of our regular politics panel. There's property manager and businesswoman Jenny Lancio, Curve Lake First Nations Councillor and Ontario NDP Indigenous Peoples Committee Chair Sean Conway, and campaign manager and consultant Lauren Hunter. Well, welcome all. Now, uh, to start with, uh, as a local political watcher, uh, a former city council candidate, and host of this radio program, uh, which focuses on local politics, you, you'd be forgiven if you assumed that I should be relatively up to date with the major uh, goings-on down at City Council. Alas, no. Uh, with the dominance of the American politics uh, across all, all platforms and news cycles in January, uh, I know I'm not alone in having lost the plot in following what has been happening or not happening at City Council. To prepare for this discussion, uh, I went to my uh, go-to Coles notes for, for cramming on City Council, and that is uh, Examiner reporter Joel Kovacs' Twitter feed. So here's what I discovered this week. Council uh, debated progress of the Wellness Center renovations, which must start soon in order to qualify for funding support. And then there was discussion, then approval of an apartment development on Lansdowne, just east of Concilla. Apparently, these buildings will have no impact on neighboring Harper Park. There was also preliminary approval of a development uh, on Park Hill East for 55 units of affordable housing. But last week, uh, Kovac was tweeting about the standoff uh, between MPP Dave Smith and Mayor uh, Terrian over Smith's putative threat to withhold provincial funds for uh, the housing development, uh, for housing development in Peterborough. But all this is just the froth. What's really going on, City Council, these days? Well, I'll, I'll dive in and say that it is good that the MPP and Bear have buried the hatchet. We saw that statement come out uh, a few weeks ago now, and, and I think it's it's really a nothing burger when it comes That's down to the way that um, uh, various levels of government operate. And we've got personalities, and they get into things about X, Y, Z, and I don't think it's anything to focus on. I think really the big story coming out of Peterborough City Council right now that really, I think, has the biggest sort of, I would place as its importance, uh, would be that City Council finally decided what to do with the proceeds of the sale of Peterborough Hydro. Uh, and to that to be put into long-term investment was the smartest decision, given the situation. I think a lot of us uh, were opposed to that that sale when it happened a few years ago. But the best outcome was to be put into long-term investment to benefit the citizens and taxpayers of the city of Peterborough is the smartest outcome for that situation. And I think that that is, again, another example of city council burying a hatchet 
and moving forward on a priority area, which was a point of conflict for a lot of people in the municipality, but also in the greater area. Um, so that is really nice to see. And it's great to see a bit of resolve around some of the bigger issues. And that's definitely one of them. Okay. Now, have we seen any result? Well, okay. I'll go with results from that sale of PDI in terms of service, uh, utility bills. Has there been any impact yet? As far as because that was the fear. Sure, yeah, I mean, as far as level of service goes, we, you know, because we own properties and apartment buildings, we deal with the PUC quite a bit. And quite honestly, if you didn't know, you wouldn't know. It's been fairly transparent. All their staff stayed the same. I think the only thing that changed was maybe the shirts that they wear. Like, beyond yes. that, it's been completely transparent. Same with, you know, their when you call their billing department or you call in for a trouble call or anything like that. It's if, like I said, if you didn't know, you wouldn't know. Uh, anything else in city hall that uh, we should be aware of? Uh, yes. yes. Yeah, it's Lauren. And I think, um, and I'll just come back to your first point. I don't think it just as Sean said that the, the back and forth between the mayor and the MPP is worth spending too much time on. But I do think that the issue at the heart of that conflict, which is housing and affordable housing in the city of Peterborough, mm. continues to be a massive problem. And, you know, I think you're seeing the strain um, being felt by municipalities in the city of Peterborough in particular, in terms of what levers they can pull and what funding they can access to actually build affordable housing. And it's happening, and there's a lot of development happening in the city of Peterborough right now, uh, but it is in dribs and drabs. Uh, and we're not seeing a lot of big projects. Uh, I'll put the Peterborough Housing Corporation conversation aside because I want to touch on that. But yes, uh, please. You know, it's, it's sort of project by project, and um, I do think that there's a legitimate conversation to be had about the role of both upper levels of government, the feds and the province, in how they fund housing, in what those programs look like, in the accessibility of those programs. Um, and I will say that, you know, at least on the federal government side, there is a national housing strategy. There's sort of an overarching vision. There are a lot of dollars. I think the strategy, uh, some of the programs are pretty onerous to access uh, for developers and for municipalities. I think there is still work that needs to be done uh, to make that more streamlined and make it easier to access. Um, but we, I don't think we have seen the same kind of focus on housing from the province that we have from the federal government. So I, I do think there's legitimate criticism there in terms of the role that the province plays. Um, and, you know, I think that that's some of the frustration that you saw play out uh, that way. And I just, just, I think it's a challenging time for everybody. So it's no wonder that frustration might be expressed in this oh, way. Of course, Jen. Um, probably like a whole other topic for lengthy conversation, but I have some, con I have some concerns about the way that the funding model has worked from the federal government and the oversight that's being um, seen with that project. When developers are applying for funding, and it is an onerous process for sure but if you put in the time the funding that they're getting to build these you know quote unquote geared to income um apartments is about three hundred and thirty thousand dollars per unit that's a tremendous amount of money to build a one-bedroom apartment and my question is where's the oversight in that if a builder manages to build a one-bedroom apartment for two hundred thousand dollars 
where's that other $130,000 going? Is it going into the builder's pocket? Like, I don't know. I, I haven't been able to figure out who's doing the accounting for this. It's not like you submit your invoices at the end of your project and the money was, is reimbursed to you dollar for dollar. You're getting a flat rate amount at the beginning of the project. And you do that, do with that what you may. And does anybody come back around at the end to look at your numbers? I don't know. So I believe that's the role that is supposed to be played by um, the Canadian, I'm going to get the name wrong now, Canadian, the Canadian Housing Corporation. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I mean, you know, talk about the, the onerous application. I mean, a lot of that oversight is happening at the front end because like you need to be pretty much ready to put shovels in the ground by the that's time right. you submit an application. And, you know, that's a high... Uh, there's a lot of expense that goes into just oh, getting no. to that point, right? Um, yeah. But I think that they're supposed to be uh, monitoring those things on the other side, but I don't know that for a fact, so I don't want to um, speak out of turn. Um, but I, I think, uh, I do think that the national housing strategy was probably came out the door faster than the CMHC was ready for, you know, they'd been out of the business mm -hmm. of actually building housing for more than 10 years. And the organization had, uh, shrunk accordingly because they were not at the helm and they weren't spearheading big sort of national strategies like this. And they had to gear up very quickly. Uh, and I think the strategy came out the door um, maybe before everything was perfect, but because the need was so great and the, you know, people were demanding it uh, and, and because we need affordable housing and we needed a national housing strategy for so long that I think some of those things have been works in progress as it's gone along. Uh, and that right. makes it tricky for everybody. It makes it tricky for folks who are trying to apply for it because expectations can change as you go along. But on the other hand, if they had waited for everything to be perfect and to be figured out completely, then we probably still wouldn't have a national housing strategy at this point, you know, uh, right. how many years after the Trudeau government was first elected. Sean? Yeah, I want to just pick up on that a little bit. And I think it's very good that Canada now has a national housing strategy. I think that's a good forward step. Um, I think the piece that needs to come inside with that is you need provincial governments, municipal governments, and community organizations with similarly guided plans uh, that are funded through their own avenues or however, through whether you're talking about private involvement or, or whatever, that are ready, uh, as said, um, it's an onerous process applying for CMHC money. Um, so organizations need to be ready with, with shovels in the ground, ready to go for these projects. They need to know where it's going to be going. And it's up to... Uh, various levels of government to know where the housing is going to go, who is going to live in it, who's going to pay for it before you bring in federal partners. So that planning right. needs to be done and that long-term thinking about planning in the municipality, it doesn't matter where it is. It could be Peterborough, it could be Curve Lake, it could be Lakefield. It does not matter. But if you don't know where your city is going to be in 10 to 15 years, it doesn't matter what kind of national housing strategy you're going to have because you're dead in the water. Right. Now, what is the status of the, uh, propose, uh, the proposed huge development, I think 1,400 units that was, was going to, that uh, has been discussed at City Council? And Lauren, you mentioned the Peterborough Housing Corporation. So what is the status of that? Where are we at? So um, I think that's a really interesting piece of this puzzle. And I just have to say, <laughs> I'm so pleased that 
there is a proposal that's gone to council that actually talks about the kind of number of units that yes. you know, is still not going to meet the need in Peterborough, let's be clear, because by the time they build those units, you know, the need is going to far outstrip it. And with everything that's been happening through COVID with um, the cost of housing outside the GTA skyrocketing, you know, there's a whole other problem on the other side of it. But at least well, we're yeah. about 1,400 and 1,100, like the numbers that are going to make a difference. So what uh, happened uh, was that council um, approved basically a hybrid model. So uh, the Peterborough Housing Corporation had put forward a proposal. I haven't seen it. I don't believe it was made public, but that went out to council and to staff to say, let us become uh, a nonprofit entity on our own so that the housing corporation could take on debt that wouldn't show on the city's books because city municipalities, being creatures of the province, uh, have certain rules about how much debt they can take on and what space they need for capital projects they might want to finance, etc. So the amount of debt that would need to be taken for a project of this size and scope exceeded what the city either could do or would reasonably want to do, you know, making sure they had room for a rainy day and what if a road fails or a flood comes or something like that. So instead of going with the PHC proposal, um, they um, there was a review done by KPMG, the big consulting firm, and they came up and proposed a hybrid model where uh, a new, uh, it's called a government business entity would be created uh, that would have the city of Peterborough as its sole shareholder. Uh, so it would be independent in the sense that it could also take on that um, monstrous debt and it wouldn't show on the city's books but the city would have more of a stake and more control, frankly, over what the entity does than if, my understanding, than if Peterborough Housing Corporation went on its own and became its own nonprofit organization. So that's, oh, okay. that's how I see it is sort of they landed in between and, you know, the one option being status quo, keep doing what you're doing, and the other option being full independence for PHC. They kind of found this middle ground. Uh, and there was some back and forth about whether they should defer that until PHC could speak to council, et cetera. But uh, council has just decided to go through with that plan. So it's an ambitious undertaking. I mean, creating a new government entity uh, in the span of 18 months alone is pretty ambitious, I think. But that's 18 months is actually the timeline to create the new entity, apply for the funding and actually start building those 1400 units. So I also could say when we're talking about significant decisions in front of city council, I think the PDI right. was a huge thing. I think this is a huge thing and it will fundamentally reshape how Peterborough does affordable housing for potentially a generation. Wow. I, I don't think that was Good. a bad idea on the part of the city. Um, I don't know that PHC is in a position to take on a project of that size right now. They've got enough of, their existing properties that they're trying to manage without taking on, a, I mean, it's just massive. Just they don't, and PHC doesn't build. They are managers of existing structures. So the, the expertise just isn't there. And I just, I just had visions of it becoming a bit of a, a, a nightmare. So I think this is probably a better solution. Now, do we have any idea of the, crudely put, the, the slices of the pie here? Like how much of this pie for these 1,400 units is going to be paid by the city of Peterborough? How much is going to be 
uh, footed by the feds? How much by the prom- Are those numbers out yet? I don't know. I think, I think some of that is in the um, the KPMG sort of review slash proposal. Right. I don't know them off the top of my head, but a big massive chunk is meant to come from the national housing strategy and the application mm-hmm. that way. Um, and I just on the PHC, I mean, they are doing some building themselves um, right now, which I think does speak to challenges in terms of capacity and, and whatnot. Um, On a much smaller scale, though, right? Well, that's it. They are doing some smaller builds. Um, and, uh, yeah, which is great. I mean, I think the projects that they are working on, there's one on Bonacord and a few others, are really important, too. And so hopefully the new entity will enable them because it, it is also meant to, I believe, uh, PHC is going to keep the social housing component right. of the portfolio. Uh, and I think the idea is that the new government entity would probably contract with PHC to then manage the properties that have been built. Um, okay. I am wrong. Okay. I hope someone will correct me, but that was my understanding. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, hopefully creating that new entity will also mean an increase in capacity and who can help out and bring on that expertise. Well, we've, um, when I say we, I mean, this program has tilted on the, at the housing windmill a number of times over the last uh, almost three years uh, on affordable housing, on housing in general, on Peterborough's housing strategy. And um, just last week, I rebroadcast the uh, interview you did with uh, Megan Hennekamp and Christian Harvey. Uh, Megan is in charge of the Yes Shelter, and Christian Harvey runs uh, One City Peterborough. On And the theme of that, which was recorded last uh, April, was uh, what what it, is the impact of the pandemic on Peterborough's homeless? And of course, we've got the, the dearth of housing. And uh, just this past week, I had an exchange of emails with uh, Megan about the rebroadcast of that program and i said uh, we'll we'll see if you know during the program we'll see if your predictions have come true and she, her reply was sadly we underestimated it i had no idea it was going to be this awful so that's what's happening on the ground and i have to say living in peterborough i mean i just see more desperation more People looking for a hand up, uh, hand up downtown. Uh, we've had people going door to door here, just outside of downtown, uh, looking for money. I think things are things are tough, and so to hear that this is being addressed, uh, maybe this is the beginning of a change. Also, we referenced what's going on with housing. Um, I have no idea when my wife and I bought this house some 21 years ago, it would be worth, you know, the queen's ransom that it is now. I mean, it's ridiculous how the price has shot up. Now, you'd think as a homeowner, well, hooray. But, of course, you you sell a house, where do you move to? Oh, a thorny issue. All right. Well, thank you for that. Could we... Uh, just change gears uh, to uh, Queen's Park and uh, Ontario and Doug Ford. Now, I'm wondering, uh, as the pandemic lurches on, and of course we've had some bad news here uh, locally, uh, both at Trent and Fleming, uh, and we're moving into the red zone uh, come Monday in Peterborough. Uh, 
uh, now, does Doug Ford have a, a vaccine distribution plan or not? And, and what is driving this lack of clarity? I, I, I hate to say it, but sort of the evidence of the lack of thoughtful planning. Does anyone have any insight on that around vaccine distribution? Well, I think there's a number of things uh, that you mentioned, Bill. Um, so the Ontario Government Vaccine Task Force, um, and as well as the Science Table, um, who, who finally now we, we know who sits at, at those tables, uh, particularly the Science Table, and there's a number of respected physicians there, I think from uh, sort of all political leanings, if you will, um, and I think that's a good thing, as well as the Vaccine Task yeah. Force. I think that the choice of General Hillier was probably not a great choice for the spokesperson of that organization and that a little bit of communications finesse would be good. But really, when you read the documents, the government of Ontario's vaccine task force rollout has been fairly clear um, in in how they're going to roll these things out. And I don't think there's been any real surprises there. The big problem is... Uh, the supply issues that Canada has had over the last uh, couple of months in order to have the doses. See, I was listening to General Hillier on CBC Radio just the other day, and he was getting grilled by, you know, some some state reporter. Um, and um, it was it was about, um, uh, but but why aren't more vaccines in arms? Why isn't this happening? Why isn't this happening? Ontario uses every vaccine dose they can get. Um, it's it's not their fault about supply. And to be fair, it's no fault of the Trudeau government as well. It's just the unlucky hand that Canada has been given, I think, because, number one, the federal government got rid of vaccine production in Canada through Conant Labs and all of our other manufacturing sectors. And we saw that through NAFTA. And that's a, you know, that's the corporate duopoly of liberals and conservatives destroying our capacity to do anything in the country. But <laughs> really, the the layout is one thing. But there was a long break in what was going on in Queen's Park. They were out of work. They were not legislating. They were not there answerable to the people of Ontario for over a month. And that was during all of these lockdowns, all of this sort of second wave business. There was no apparatus to keep the government in check. So just the other day, school's back in session, Doug Ford's at question period. And prior to question period is generally when we have a couple of point of orders. Are we going to have any... Um, opposition bills seeking unanimous consent and unanimous consent motions and things like that. There was a barrage of um, bills that were presented to uh, the Ontario legislature, which were poised. They were either in first or second reading. Um, so they were sought unanimous consent on paid sick days, 10 paid sick days in the province of Ontario. It was shot down. It was uh, there was a plan to put an equity strategy in for vaccine and COVID impact studies for racialized communities. It was shot down by the government. There were all of these measures that the government has not taken that their own science table, chief medical officers of health, uh, nurses, unions, doctors, associations, the people of Ontario are demanding. The Ontario NDP is bringing them forward to the Ford government and the Ford government is shutting them down every single day. Every time we have a question period, prior to that, we have that opportunity for unanimous consent where the legislated and elected people who rule Ontario can make a decision to make the lives of people who live in Ontario better. 
And every time the Ford government shut it down. And that's where we're at. To the point where Doug Ford was so lauded in media, in social media, in print, even the sun went after Doug Ford on paid sick days, on all of these sorts of things. The sun, Sue Ann Levy, John, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Brian yeah. Lilly, Brian Lilly. Lilly, yeah. Was that Marxist that he is, yes. <laughs> you know, comrade Brian Lilly at the Toronto <laughs> Sun was yeah. like at the Doug Ford government. So it's there are simple things that Ontario can step in to do because they've got tons of money. They have tons of money. The people of Ontario, we don't have a lot of the money. Right. Because people are still hurting because people are messing it up at Queen's Park. They're not listening to the people that they're supposed to be listening to. We're in right. endless lockdowns and right. people are fed up. Yes. Now, I, I did uh, read that there was a major piece of le- legislation that was passed through last week. And in it, there was a rider about... Um, uh, nullifying the control of local uh, environmental assessment groups uh, over conservation areas. Just gone. So in other words, you want to protect your, your, your wetland? Sorry. If a developer wants it, the developer has it. You know, it, it, I'm sure Stephen Del Duca is happy about that, putting a pool up. Sean, <laughs> <laughs> low blow. Taking Sean's observations and uh, looking at the situation in Ontario schools. Now, should they stay open in the midst of this, I guess, the end of the second wave and the uh, epidemiologists on the news, some of them are saying we're on the brink of a third. Uh, Should they be staying open for this possible third wave? I think if they're going to stay open, they're going to have to get somebody better on their communication side of the house. I fortunately don't have children in school right now. And I am like in elementary school and I am thankful for that every day. My best friend does. It is a absolute nightmare. She has two kids. Her youngest one doesn't like to go to school ever. So at recess time, her youngest one said, Oh my gosh, I have a cough and a snuffly nose. The next thing you know, my friend's getting the phone call. Come and pick up not one, but both of your kids, and they can't come back until they both have a COVID test. Then, my cousin who lives in Ottawa has two kids both in elementary school. Her youngest one was in close contact with a COVID-positive take case in his class, so he stays home. But it's okay. Her older one can still go to school. It just doesn't make any sense, you know? And my girlfriend's saying to her kid's teacher, there is nothing the matter with my kid other than she doesn't want to be at school. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Once they say it, we have to call you and you have to come and get them and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the communications just aren't, aren't clear. My girlfriend's not a dumb woman and she's reading through this, like, list of restrictions and requirements and none of it even makes any sense to anybody great lauren so i mean i don't have kids either and uh, i'm not uh, involved in that at all so i feel like i can't really comment but i just picking up on jenny's um 
mentioned about the need for clear communication. I think that's been such a struggle for uh, the education system. I think we're seeing that now with the vaccine rollouts. I think in part, you know, coming back to your original question, um, while the the high level stuff that's happening at the province um, in terms of, you know, age groups and whatnot, fine, but it's the 34 individual health units who are responsible for the details of it. When are the clinics happening? Who can book it? How to book it? Do you call? Do you email? You know, and so the result of the lack of a clear sort of communication strategy, and I'm not putting this on the public health units. I think they're doing the damn the, the best they can with yeah. limited resources. And let's just remember the whole conversation about public health units before the pandemic was about collapsing them into smaller or like larger yes. um, regions and decreasing funding and all the sure, rest sure, of it. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, economies of scale. But it's the same thing with the school boards, right? So when you have different school boards implementing or, or interpreting the rules in different ways and communicating that out, then necessarily you're going to have exactly the thing that Jenny was describing. Well, in Ottawa, they're doing this. And here in Peterborough, we're experiencing this. And parents talk to each other mm-hmm. just as you do with your friends and your cousin and whatnot. And so when people, and I think there's an element of this with the regulations in terms of small businesses and what they can do. And so when there's these disconnects that don't seem to make a lot of logical sense, then it's really tough for people to understand why it is the way it is here and it's not somewhere else. And when the communication is muddy, then you've just got, I think, the frustration mounts and mounts. And and that's where we're at. People are just tired of it all. Yeah, I saw here, I want to pick up on that. Um, I want to pick up on the education side of things. So um, in, in my work in the education department here in the community, we're looking at the best practices that are recommended not only from the Ontario Science Table, also through federal uh, guidelines and, and other guidelines from other regions to create our own system, but using the best practice possible. So um, class caps um, of 15 is is too much in our, our view. And that's often been the case in successful places that have been able to stall lockdowns and stop transmission. You're looking at Vietnam, you're looking at South Korea, you're looking at New Zealand in ways to um, ensure that your schools are open through the pandemic. And, and that is a public policy choice. That's how you use COVID zero, not just flatten the curve. You know, flatten the curve is bad public policy. It really, really was. If we would have taken actual measures, uniform, unilateral, and crystal clear messaging from the federal government and imposed it on the provinces, yes. kicking and screaming, we yeah. would be, have been out of this by last summer. But unfortunately, Canada is really, really stuck on certain sections of the Constitution. But there are emergency powers. But we don't have to get into that right now because I'm sure no no one's really constitutional scholars that listen in. So <laughs> really, what, what needs to happen is, is the priority needs to be in supporting uh, people, number one. But number two, it's supporting learners in order to ensure that our young people and the youth of the community are not disrupted Mm -hmm. as much as they have been over the last year. So bad policy existed and we weren't able to get to a situation where we're not disrupting young people. And unfortunately that had to happen. So the primary focus of any government right now should be COVID zero, ensuring that children are in school or in early care uh, and ensuring that all of the things are in place so that the workers and people who are dealing with our children have every 
tool at their disposal to create a safe environment is that that's going to be extremely low um, class or, or, or school sizes. It's going to be increased ventilation. It's going to be, Correct. you know, good screening. It's going to be um, reduced days. You know, yes. there, are, there are certain things that can happen. You don't need to have a recess. Condense the day. You know, right. there's certain things that can be done. And yep. and it's just about being creative in that. And and unfortunately, apparently in Canada, we don't get to be creative when we don't get to have COVID zero. So again, stuck in a boom bust cycle. Yes, uh, Jacinda Ardern is uh, looking better with each each passing week in terms of what she was able to do in New Zealand. Uh, so in terms of the schools and what we're at now, is it muddle through, make the best of a subpar situation? What should happen going forward? I am hearing sighs. <laughs> Go ahead, I, I Jen. Don't know if any, I don't know if anybody knows what the right thing to do is, what the solution is. Nobody's like, Sean's ideas about, you know, condensing the school day and smaller classroom size. Nobody's, it's kind of like all or nothing. Either the kids are in school full time or they're not there at all. Nobody seems to want to be doing any sort of thinking or implementing outside of the box. And I don't understand why, because kids are losing, like we're on to year two of education. And if you have a kid that's getting ready to go to university it is a plan to fail. They're going to hit university and like they're going to be home by Christmas. They're just not going to they're just not going to have the educational base. Yeah. Uh, I would hope that universities and colleges would recognize that this is what's happened in the last 2 years for just as you say, you know, folks who are going to be graduating and that there would be some kind of accommodation made because it's it, you know it, it's there's power in numbers it's not like it's just happening to one area it's happening across the entire country so i would yes. love to think that universities and colleges could figure out how to adapt and be helpful rather than punishing kids who's who are not at fault for any of this right who yeah. just run along for the ride but uh, the yeah. problem uh, and i can speak with no authority, but at least a bit of knowledge in terms of Fleming College. Um, so many of the vocationally oriented courses out there, uh, paramedics, uh, a graduating paramedic student has to be able to know how to do X, Y, Z procedures. <laughs> you can't accommodate that. You have to be able no. to know how to do that. And yes. and how to get to that point is, is the challenge. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, not for students who are already in university and college. There's there's certain things there. I guess it's the the cohort that is going to graduate from high school and go into university. Right. Yeah. How do you catch them up on, you know, where the gaps might be from grade 11 and 12? Or if you're older like I am, there's no grade 13. But I did always see. Lauren, you're you're not older. You're not. I was just right. Every once in a while, I want to say OAC, and that's not a thing anymore. But uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, grade yeah. 12, right? Uh, trying to graduate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, one other provincial area I want to touch on, and I, we've touched on this already in reference to Peterborough and housing and poverty. What measures should both municipal and provincial governments 
be taking to deal with the grim rise in poverty that, well, I've already uh, said it here in Peterborough. Uh, you know, there's more panhandling, there's there's door-to-door begging that I haven't seen before. There are assaults downtown. Uh, a young guy was held up for his groceries at knife point. So the thief took the groceries. This is something I haven't heard of, seen in Peterborough before. What what could both levels of government, municipal and provincial, be doing about this? I feel like Peterborough has kind of become a bit of the Wild West here in the last year. We've got, you know, people getting stabbed in the neck and dying in the street and is talking to a police officer and they're attending at least one overdose every single day in the city. And, you know, you know like the, the crime yeah. rate has just gone through the roof. And, and I'm not making light of COVID and the restrictions that have to be in place. And I'm not saying that dealing with poverty is through policing. But I'm not sure that the best use of the police's resources right now is shaking people down in a restaurant and asking them who they're eating dinner with. Like, we have got bigger issues going on in the city right now. And if people are following the rules for COVID, they're going to follow them anyway. People that don't follow them aren't going to follow them. It doesn't really matter what sort of restrictions you say you have in place. And when we're asking the police to walk downtown and go into restaurants and ask people who they're eating meals with and somebody's getting stabbed in the neck in broad daylight a street over, it's a problem. In my mind, the resources are being spent in the wrong spot. Mm-hmm. Yes, Lauren. I'll, I mean, I think, Bill, your question was what should the municipal and provincial government do? And I will say that the feds have to have a role um, in terms sure. of um, uh, poverty and income levels and people's incomes having been so severely impacted by COVID. Um, I mean, I think there's been some studies now that are starting to show what the impact of the CERB was, particularly on the lowest income households and how those households actually had more savings than they'd had in the past. And, uh, you know, I was I'm disappointed to hear the Conservative Party of Canada continue with the rhetoric of uh, that the, the government has spent too much money uh, in supporting individual Canadians, when I think actually we're seeing the exact opposite in communities yes. like Peterborough, uh, where that is playing out day to day in people's lives and, and visibly, uh, right? So I think there's a role for all levels of government. And I think I I, I don't want to be... Uh, too hopeful about the federal budget, but I'd love to see some some ongoing income support measures and other pieces uh, to to address some of those problems. And, and they're interconnected uh, levels of poverty, access to affordable housing, the opioid crisis. These big challenges are all interconnected uh, and they think they take a holistic they need a holistic perspective and a holistic view of them to actually tackle them effectively. Yeah, sure. uh, thanks, Bill. Sean here. Um, what we've seen in the last year is one of the largest upward transfers of wealth from the working class in the history of this country. Bingo. We've seen billions and billions of dollars go from the, uh, the working class people up to corporations like Amazon and to uh, the tech companies and and to the banks and all of this. And there's been, realistically, looking at CERB, CERB was a very small program in in 
what was actually needed, I think, for a lot of people. We are now in a place where income disparity, it's not a linear thing. It's an exponential yes. thing that we've seen, yes. not not just in the last year, but we've seen income inequality explode in Canada and the divide between the upper class and the lower class. The middle class doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. Doesn't exist. Um, you've got the the corporate elites who run everything and they control the government and then everybody else. And and really what's happening is everyone on who's not in the big club, our access to live our lives and to be free and to have access to good paying jobs and to good like social safety nets and welfare and good programs for our families is, is disappearing. And so you saw a bit of a return to that over the last 10 years with the implementation of the Canada child tax benefit, which is a very good program. Is it enough? Right. Absolutely not. Was CERB enough? No, absolutely not. Um, and, and even now moving into the, EI-based system, it's completely inadequate for people who are on the lowest end of the spectrum who have no access to any programming. So that's really, when you look at it, we need to get money into people's hands. That is the the simplest way that you move forward. You make sure that people's material needs are met that there is a base level. Look at Motion 46 in front of the House right now from uh, MP Leah Gazan to implement a, uh, a GLBI system in Canada. We know that it works from the income studies in the 1970s as well as through the Ontario Liberal pilots in uh, 2018. They're good programs, but are, are they everything? Absolutely not. Basic income is, is not the be-all, end-all. You need supports, employment, training, education, health care, we need a real health care program in this country, not the rinky-dink so-called health care system that we have. We need, uh, we need our medications. We need treatments. We need mental health therapies. We need dental. We need all of these things. Yeah, absolutely. Pharmacare. Mm-hmm. We need public insurance companies and get rid of private insurance for small businesses. Like, right. it's ridiculous. You talk right now, I talk to business owner friends of mine in the city of Peterborough, they're getting gouged by private companies saying that, well, we're not going to let you open because we don't think you're going to make it. So we're not going to sell you insurance. But even if you want it, we're going to jack your premium by $10,000 every quarter. You're you're allowing these corporations to say what can be open and what can't be open. It doesn't matter if you're locked down or not because the insurance company is not going to let you open up. And that's the problem we have here. Let that sink in. All right. Uh, so to move from Queen's Park, shoot up Highway 17 to Ottawa, uh, one observation I have is that um, it appears that the Trudeau derangement syndrome has reached plague proportions. Uh, Aaron O'Toole seems to have not learned Michael Ignatieff's lesson. Uh, in 2011, Ignatieff ran on a platform built on a simple foundation. Stephen Harper is bad. It didn't do so well for him. Now, Aaron O'Toole seems to be running on a similar platform. Justin Trudeau is bad. How will this work out for Mr. O'Toole? What do Did we you mean? really seriously just say Trudeau derangement syndrome? <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, I, well, that's not real. Watching on social media, well, you know, we've referenced the sun. I mean, uh, folks like Brian Lilly, it's like holding a carrot 
in front of a hungry uh, goat. He just goes wild over Trudeau. Uh, you know, nothing can be said to dissuade him. Uh, you know, the Ezra Levants of the world, and and on and on. It's it's this hair trigger reaction, and, and it's it's breeding this war of slogans and i'm just wondering how is this going to play out i mean suppose we do have an election this year which is another topic um how does that translate into policy well i think that really right now you know trudeau derangement syndrome real or not the liberals under justin trudeau will never get a majority government under because it's true there are two things that the justin trudeau government in seven years in power four of which with a majority government there are two policies that really made a difference in this country. One is the legalization and decriminalization of marijuana. The other right. would be the Canada Child Tax Benefit. Beyond that, it's been half measures and promises. Right. And people see that. Now, you get that same sort of Brian Lilly or Aaron O'Toole response, but you also get it from people in the community who happen to believe in the real change message in 2014 and 15, and they saw no change into the status quo. Really, we've seen you know, marching forward with the plans under Harper. We've kept a lot of his uh, same international trade deals. In fact, we made them better for some of the more questionable actors around the world. Look at Saudi Arabia right now. We renegotiated that deal that Mm -hmm. Harper put together, and now we're actively assisting Saudi Arabia with LAVs to commit a genocide in Yemen. Yeah, yeah, It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then, of course, there's the whole proportional representation promise that wasn't a promise commitment that then ebbed away all right now canada is behind uh, a number of major company uh, countries in uh, that was a freudian slip canada is behind several major countries in covid vaccine vaccinations uh now we know why uh canada does does not produce uh, vaccines but what could be done to pick up the pace of our vaccinations across the country? And are we going to see uh, something of a sea change? I think the way that the U.S. is rolling out their vaccinations seems to be working really well. Um, my husband and I were both really fortunate to be inv- included in this first wave of vaccinations, and I appreciate it, and it ran like a well-oiled machine. We got an email from the health unit. We went, we did it, we were done in and out, and that worked really well. I'm wondering why they aren't running at the same time, like a first come, first serve, you line up and we'll give you the vaccinations until we run out of them, regardless of your age, your gender, your underlying conditions, any of any of that. That's what they're doing in the States. They opened up the doors. You want an appointment? You can make an appointment and come on down and we'll vaccinate you. And they seem to be making great strides in getting their population vaccinated. I think that it would probably work well for Canada if they ran like the dual stream, like make your appointment. And if that's what works for you and that's where your comfort level is, have your appointment and go and get it done. But if you also want to go line up at two o'clock in the morning at the Memorial Center and wait your turn, have it that too. Sure. I think part of that, Jenny, comes from a confidence in supply and having yes. manufacturing capabilities that you you know those doses are coming uh, and you can put the thumb on the companies uh, in a way that we can't um, because, as we've mentioned, uh, we don't have our own domestic manufacturing yeah. capacity. That said, um, you know, we just had today a fourth vaccine. 
get approved. We exactly. also heard from Pfizer that they are ramping up their delivery. It's another million and a half doses, I think, in, in the yeah. next little while. So there are very encouraging signs that the supply is stabilizing and ramping up. And so I think that you know, kind of an approach could be something, but uh, that is in the hands of the provinces um, to decide those sorts of distribution mm -hmm. models. Um, and I think as they get more confident in the supply and they see the trucks coming in on a regular basis, uh, right. especially with those, uh, the Johnson and Johnson in particular, you know, without the same kind of stringent requirements in terms of uh, temperatures that they're, they're maintained at and what uh, I think you could see uh, more dynamic rollouts happening across the country, but I think, you know, in fairness, I think the provinces have been shy to go that route um, because of uh, a lack of confidence in the supply. Hopefully the J&J &J will make a difference. Like we yeah. will increase our volumes here. I, hope so I was too. thinking... I was speaking to some healthcare workers the other day, uh, as, as you may know, Curve Lake First Nation ran a COVID-19 vaccination clinic on Wednesday. There's another tomorrow. Right. I've been volunteering at both. I did receive my first uh, dose of a Pfizer vaccine on Wednesday and a fantastic clinic. Um, Peterborough Public Health, as, as well as Curve Lake First Nation staff, uh, integrating wholly with community volunteers, um, like in and out, 15 minutes, yeah. Um, it was really, really great. We were able to get hundreds of people done on Wednesday. We'll do the same tomorrow and the same on Wednesday. And um, so that's really, really great. Johnson & Johnson, as well as Moderna, were game changers for healthcare workers with the ability, uh, specifically with Moderna, to be able to access some of the more vulnerable communities in Canada, up in the north, particularly in northern Ontario. That regular... With regular freezers. With regular uh, vaccine freezers with your minus yeah. 20s and your minus 40s. Uh, Pfizer uh, needs a minus 70, minus 60 range. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so being able to use Moderna in those communities is great, but also having the AstraZeneca shot available, I think is great. I think as a general public vaccination, as well as the Johnson & Johnson as a one shot. And I think it's great news Number one, from the Trudeau government, that they were able to put pressure enough on Pfizer that we've got more Pfizer coming in. That's amazing. And and two vaccinations, I think putting us on a scale like one to 40 is really unfair for Canada. I don't think that it is. Um, I do not think that it's the right thing to blame Justin Trudeau. I don't mm -hmm. think it's the right thing to blame the federal government. I don't think it's the right thing to blame the provincial government and let alone your local health unit. I think it's an international problem of supply and demand that Canada happened to. Yes. Because we subscribe to that free market deal, we end up in that situation. But there are things that can happen now that we have a fourth vaccine to what Jenny was saying, which I think is a great idea. Hit your priority targets. And then if you're like, right. oh, my God, we missed like 20. It's like, come on, let's let's go. Um, just start calling people up to come on down. I, and I think we're going to get to that point really soon. Mm -hmm. I think it's important what Sean said when it comes to the blame game. Has anybody ever navigated through a pandemic ever? No, there's no guidelines yes. for it. Nobody had a like business continuity plan for yes. it. Everybody's yes. kind of figuring out as they go along. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's easy to say the feds aren't doing this and the province isn't doing this and public health this, and we're all just doing the best that we can with the knowledge that we have and, as we learn, then when you know better, you do better. But I mean, as long as people are getting vaccinated and 
I don't know, students aren't having parties in their residences, <laughs> then hopefully we can get through all of this relatively unscathed for the rest of this year. Well, hopefully, Jen, all the epidemiologists on Twitter would agree with you. I mean, there's thousands of them. Go ahead, Lauren. Uh, well, I was just going to say, and kind of building on that point, Jen, is that, you know, it's a year ago today, uh, or at least a year ago this week, you know, where I think for me, at least I was experiencing my last mostly carefree week out in the world. Um, I attended a major Ontario Liberal Leadership Conference sort of this weekend, one year ago. And, you know, there were hand sanitizer stations and people were being told to stay home if they were sick and whatnot. But like, you know, there were a thousand people there. We had no idea what was about to wash over everybody. And I, I think my lucky stars that there was not some kind, that that was not a super spreader event in and of itself. So I do think to be sort of one year since this really landed here in Canada and to have four vaccines approved and the number of vaccines that we have in the country is just a modern miracle global effort and everybody trying the best that they can to find a way out of this. So that leaves me a little bit hopeful as we come around to the year of the pandemic. Wonderful. Sean. Sorry. Sean, just out of curiosity, what's been the buy-in for um, the residents of Curve Lake as far as vaccinations goes? Like, do you know what percentage of your, of the people living on the reserve have been vaccinated or going to be? Well, I think it's it's a fairly substantial number. As you know, we received the Pfizer vaccine, and that is age-limited to, I believe, 18 years old. So uh, we've had great interest from the community, but we've also opened it up beyond just our, our Indian Act band membership. We're also inoculating our permanent residents. We're inoculating uh, non-member spouses, off-reserve members who want to come back, their spouses. We nice. want to cast a wide net with our... Uh, inoculations, which I think helps with the, the greater Peterborough area as well. But oh, anyone sure. that's sort of connected to the community, we want to make sure that we're offering them the opportunity, if they're comfortable, to come get vaccinated, to see the community, to see our amazing operation in, in place, and, and to see how our staff are handling everything. That's great. That's yeah. great. And uh, Sean, you've had uh, no problem finding uh, like medical volunteers, retired nurses, retired doctors, etc., uh, medical students coming out to help out? Uh, we we have uh, staff coming in from Peterborough Public Health. They're there to run the operation, as okay. well as our own local clinic and our public health nurses and our community uh, health prevention officers. And and that's been great. Uh, I myself, I'm on I'm running the parking lot tomorrow with with my council <laughs> colleagues and uh, and other folks. So we're uh, it's a big community effort to make sure that anyone who gets there feels welcomed and comfortable. They've got That's everything funny. they need, any information they want, and they, you know, we're helping the elders out and, and community members with accessibility issues, giving them the walkthrough, and our chief is right in there in the clinic, helping people get seated. Um, so it's a big community effort, and, and the turnout has been really, really amazing. I'm really proud of all the work. Great. Now, is there uh, age triage going on though? going on in other words people over a certain age like the over 65 get first or so part part of the ontario priority for vaccination uh, categories is all indigenous adults in the first wave okay so we're everybody and so part of what we wanted to do 
Uh, we're prioritizing through the day um, our elders to get in, of course, when it's less busy, but we've got it set up so that it's never too busy and there's always a close parking spot for someone who's an elder or has accessibility or mobility issues. They can come, they've got assistance, there's friendly faces, there are people that they know, and we can go in with them and make sure that they're okay. Wonderful. So uh, on that note, uh, so uh, Jenny, uh, Sean, and Lauren, thank you so much for joining me for this panel discussion. Uh, you've been listening to Pints and Politics. We're a weekly discussion program about all things political, coming to you every Thursday evening at 8 p.m. through the facilities of Trent Radio, 92.7 on your FM dial, CFFF in Peterborough, Ontario. Uh, we also have a podcast. You can find the episode of uh, tonight's show, episode number 104, uploaded to the um, Peterborough PTBO podcaster site. We post on Twitter at Bill Temp and on our Facebook page, Pints and Politics Podcast. And we're on iTunes and Stitcher. So until next week, this is Bill Templeman. 